Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, March 27, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. It is show number 271, and tonight we are featuring National Weather Podcast Month. We have Dr. John Scala on from Weather Breens and Mark Johnson on from the Stormfront Freaks. And as we've been talking about uh, this month, it is uh, National Weather Podcast Month. I think this is year number three, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, excited to have uh, Dr. Scala on with us and Mark. Uh, Johnson on with us, and we would love for you to uh, participate with us tonight. If you are watching us on our uh, YouTube page, our Facebook Live, or Periscope streams, you may submit questions or comments uh, throughout the show. We'll be monitoring all of those outlets, and uh, if you have any questions for our guests, we will uh, be sure to address them. And if you're listening on our podcast uh, version, we will let our guests uh, kind of plug themselves and their respective weather podcasts. So, uh, we'd love for you to follow them and listen to uh, to the podcast. Uh, that's kind of the goal for National Weather Podcast Month. So uh, very happy to have uh, Dr. John Scala on and Mark Johnson on with us tonight. So uh, before we uh, get into tonight's interviews, I'm going to toss it over to James Brighton, who has the latest uh, on the weather news in the uh, area over the past week. James? Scotty, thanks very much. That's right. We have some weather headlines for you here on March the 27th. Hard to believe that the month of March almost over uh starting close to home we've got the uh, charleston radar the wsr 88d there in gray south carolina wanting to let you all know that this is going to be out of order until further notice the national weather service telling us that they are waiting on parts in order to get this terminal uh or excuse me this full-blown radar the wsr 88d back up and running in the meanwhile there if you're along the low country they will be using radars from other areas, such as Wilmington or Columbia. But uh, do keep that in mind if you're doing a lot of uh, radar scanning. Uh, that is uh, something that you may notice as you're tracking storms. Luckily, the weather, fairly nice today. What I'm scrolling on your screen right now is a whole long documentation. And this is a proposed budget for the year 2020 from the Department of Commerce, which does include the National Weather Service. Uh, there are a bunch of line items here in this proposed budget. It is subject to change, but a couple of the things that have already jumped out at us speaking about radars, they're looking to reduce service life extension program for next generation radars. The planned program decreased to the service life extension program to sustain aging next generation weather radars or NextRad infrastructure. The NextRad is a multi-year effort that began in 2015 and was originally anticipated to be completed in 2022. The program will extend the useful life of uh, the NextRad array by approximately 15 years, but we've got a couple other reductions here as well too including the airborne phased array radar termination. Uh, NOAA looking to terminate some research and development around the improving and detection of severe weather using airborne phased array radars. So again, this is all just proposed at this point, but something we'll keep a close eye on. Last but not least, as we look ahead to hurricane study, uh, hurricane season, a new study out there is a headline from CNN.com. Stronger hurricanes could uh, decimate forests and accelerate climate change, according to this new study. Uh, and, you know, what immediately comes to mind is a lot of the imageries that CNN references here with regards to Maria. But we can even roll some of the file footage that we have on hand in our control room, looking back at uh, Hurricane Michael as it impacted portions of the southeast, where you can see just how it impacted there, not only those communities, but also the forests. 
uh, and the woodlands. And reading a little bit from this article to you tonight, the research suggests that this could be uh, changes uh, that come to the forest across much of the Atlantic tropics as climate change drives more powerful storms. And one potential effect of this could be that forests, rather than being net carbon stores, could actually become net carbon emitters, adding more carbon to the atmosphere. In other words, as the forests increasingly become victims of climate change, they could also then help contribute to it. So again, that is just a one study that is out ahead of hurricane season. But Scotty, and bring back in the rest of the panel, something that uh, we'll keep an eye on. Definitely so. And I know uh, we didn't get it into our new segment, but the uh, Air Force suffered so much damage at uh, many of the uh, military institu institutions throughout the country uh, from this past year. They're asking for some money for repairs for the different sites as well. So hurricane season um, has been uh, pretty bad for the area over the past couple of years. And we only uh, wait to see what happens uh, this year as uh, the hurricane season kicks off in a little less than, I guess, two months from now. So we'll watch that so let's uh, start in uh, bring our in our guests tonight uh dr john scala and mark johnson on with us as we uh, wrap up national weather podcast month gentlemen uh, thank you for joining us uh, dr john we had you on a couple of years ago so uh we <laughs> welcome having uh, welcome you back to our program and mark is a uh, it's a first time guest for us so uh, our typical first time uh, guest question uh, we'll give it to Mark and John both is uh, tell us uh, a little bit about your weather story. How did you get interested in this, uh, this crazy uh, weather world that we all live in? That's a loaded question, Scotty. <laughs> uh, I guess my, I was talking today to a bunch of fifth graders. I, I'm involved with uh, one of our local science museums and I go out and do career days. And so I'm talking about my career and how I ended up where I am. And I told the kids that it wasn't a straight line. I'm not one of those weather geeks who knew right away that meteorology was their career path. They saw a tornado or they experienced a hurricane and said, that's where I'm going with my career. Mine wasn't like that at all. I started out in science. I've always been in science. That's where I knew I wanted to go. But I never, believe it or not, never thought of meteorology as a career. And it really wasn't until I was in graduate school that I actually took my first weather course. And after that, uh, that's what I pursued for my doctorate. Ended up uh, being able to participate in some fantastic uh, experiments, missions. I have flown on five different research aircraft. Uh, I worked at NASA for a number of years. I've been able to travel around the world. It's been quite a ride, and uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Sounds good. Hi, I'm Mark. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on tonight. You know, I'm a complete amateur, uh, not uh, trained much uh, of anything, but always been kind of a, a weather junkie or a weather enthusiast uh, going back to when I was a kid. Um, and I, when I went into college, I actually went into mathematics and secondary education, so I was a math teacher. But uh, before I, I uh, went into teaching, uh, I started doing some radio. So I was a, you know, a bad on-air radio person. But um, out here in South Dakota, I had my first teaching job. And while I was there, they had a National Weather Service office, actually, in, in uh, Huron. And when I arrived the first summer, I, they had a spotting class. And so I took it. I thought that would be kind of interesting. And there I was, you know, in South Dakota, where they get a few uh, tornadoes every now and again. Uh, so I took that spotting class and I kind of got hooked on on paying attention to things and paying attention to the weather. And then uh, I was on air for the mighty 1340 KIJV in here in South Dakota. And lo and behold, 
um, probably a month into my job, we had a tornado um, about two miles outside of Huron, and I was on air at the time. And so I was doing, going through all the, you know, we were uh, emergency activated, um, going through doing, we also had a, uh, we had an FM station that was automated. So if any of you ever done anything in radio and you remember all these carts and things like that, we had an automated station that you just kept plugging carts into. So I'd have to cut a weather broadcast for the FM side and run over and slap that in the thing as all these storms were coming in. And uh, my, um, my general manager showed up and asked if I had started the generator. And I said, no, I mean, I've been here for, you know, three weeks. I didn't know all those you know procedures I was going through trying to figure it all out. So he said, I'm going to run down and start the generator and then I'm going to hold the door open. And when I say, when I say run, you get yourself downstairs with me. So it was that close. And uh, I just kind of went into a mode of just constantly reporting what I was getting off the wire. This was back in the eighties. So, you know, we still had a wire. We had no you know TV <laughs> monitors or anything like that. Uh, but I just, I, I went into that and you know, after that it was, it was a bug. I wanted to pay really close attention and I wanted to be involved in public safety. And so I continued sort of uh, on in the public safety role in terms of a Skyborne spotter and things like that. So that's how I got it. So Mark, to kind of continue with the public safety aspect, um, weather podcasts have, have become uh, more popular throughout the past couple of years. And I know your, uh, your colleague, uh, Phil, was able to uh, start the uh, National Weather Podcast Month. And uh, Dr. John Scott, I'll bring you in first because you guys kind of laid the foundation, the, the, the foundation for weather podcasts with WeatherBrain. So uh, if you guys don't mind, tell our listeners uh, who are listening tonight who may not be familiar with your programs, maybe a little bit about your podcast, uh, what you guys focus on, maybe some of your panelists, and uh, just kind of uh, talk a little bit about the weather podcast you guys represent. Yeah, sure, Scotty. I'm actually a relatively new <laughs> to WeatherBrain, so I'm the we did show number 688 on Monday wow. evening, which is more than 10 years, I think, of that program being on. So I came in only a few years ago, so I feel like the new kid on the block. But we have quite an assortment. Uh, we represent uh, the broadcast side of things. Uh, there are, I think I'm probably the academic type that's in there. Uh, we've got nationally well-known meteorologists like James Spann, Kevin Selly. Nate Johnson, Aubrey Ubranowitz is not far from me. She's down in, um, in Virginia. So we actually share often uh, what our current weather situation is like, uh, what kind of precipitation we've experienced. The show, I heard you guys talking before we began this episode. What are we going to talk about from show to show? Well, it seems like we never have enough uh, time to talk about the things we want to talk about. There's always some incident occurring. There'll be a weather event. There'll be an episode of maybe somebody saying the wrong thing on air, which then gets blown out of proportion, and we talk about that. But it's typically there is just an incredible assortment of things to discuss, and we've got a group of incredibly intelligent, highly opinionated individuals who uh, really like to speak their mind. So we try to I try to find my my way in there at times. Often I just let them go. <laughs> And Mark, with you guys with uh, Stormfront Freaks, I know you guys are a little bit newer to the podcast room, but you guys have, have come onto the scene in a, in a really big way. <laughs> we've we've tried, right? We um, so Phil Johnson happens to be my brother. Uh, he's sort of the mastermind behind it, 
And his idea was to create something that, um, as he puts it, wasn't quite as sciencey uh, as as some others, and that's that's fine. He just had this idea that um, he could draw in sort of those those armchair uh, weather enthusiasts or armchair meteorologists, so to speak. I don't want to use that you know lo loosely, but uh, but he wanted to kind of pull in some of those folks like him and myself who don't have a meteorology background, who don't have a science background, and try to explain things to people in ways that they could really understand. Uh, and so that was his idea. Uh, and so what we've gone into it and and maybe we lack a, a little bit of that uh, background because while we have some great people, we have Kim Cunningham, who was a, a former uh, on-camera meteorologist with the Weather Channel. And we have Dina Knightley, uh, who is with the digital side uh, of the Weather Channel now. And Mark Massaro, who was a uh, television meteorologist in Cincinnati uh, for a number of years. So we've got the people with the science background and with the good background, but we also have a few of us that don't have sort of that background at all and we probably cover that up with with uh, humor and entertainment we try to we try to throw that little aspect into it and whether that's on purpose or accidental sometimes it's you know it's, it's sometimes it's a combination of both and sometimes when we're trying to be funny we're not and when we're not we are you know how that goes uh but we do try to throw you know some entertaining aspects uh, into the podcast as well and and but but Remarkably, we've been able to get a lot of really good guests. They've been really good sports uh, with us in terms of, you know, understanding what we're trying to do, which again is sort of educate people on a level that hopefully everybody can understand. So that's what we that's what we go after. And yeah, we we haven't been around that long. We our catalog only has seventy five episodes, and of course we only uh, uh, we only produce a show every other week. So. That keeps our numbers down a little bit, but we're happy to be around and uh, we're happy for folks to uh, find us and join us. And we're happy to be uh, celebrating National uh, Weather Podcast Month with all of you. Mark, being a relatively new podcast, how'd you go about getting uh, panelists or group members or you know your main people to join? Uh, hard work and just, <laughs> it, you know, we had, I'll, I'll tell you what. So we started with just uh, Phil and I and Mark Massaro. Uh, and a couple of folks that aren't with us anymore now that were storm chasers that uh, um, that Phil had run across in some of his work. And, um, you know, then it became just sort of those folks put their information out on social media and kind of try to drum up uh, interest. Um, Mark Massaro had a connection, got a couple of people, a couple of guests on for us. Uh, and then Phil had this thing where every time he had a guest on, he would ask the guests to recommend two or three additional guests. And so we would use that then to kind of expand out and we'd say, hey, so-and-so recommended you. Would you mind coming on our show? And, and Phil's a pretty smooth talker. And so he was able to uh, kind of accomplish that. And uh, uh, both Dina Knightley and Kim Cunningham were actually guests of ours before they joined us as, as hosts. So we kind of wrangled them in uh, by first having them on as guests and then uh, getting them to become hosts for us as well so i thought you were gonna say lots of free beer too that, that helps well we we do that that is, we do have a virtual green room and we do make sure that we in, uh invite everybody to uh imbibe with us while we uh while we're uh, broadcasting dr scala that's similar to how you joined weather brains right because you were a guest at one time oh that's right ricky i was actually going to say that they they got me on the program and I honestly didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> and after the first 15 or 20 minutes, I thought, this is not really what I expected. But it grew <laughs> on me. 
And I think the background that I bring to the show, I've, I've worked in academia, I've worked in national television, uh, I've worked in the private sector, and now I work independently on my own business. I think that brought a lot to the program, and I think they like that. It's interesting to me how many different weather podcasts there are nowadays and kind of the variety. Weather Brains is, you know, I would argue primarily an audio podcast still. We seem to be more of a video podcast. Uh, and then Stormfront Freaks is kind of a combination of both, right, Mark? Yeah, correct. I mean, we still are, our primary is is audio, but we do the video uh, for those who are interested in watching while we do it. We call it raw because they get to see behind the scenes. So. <laughs> it seems like in the world, you know, of... of you know, putting all the content out we can and 24 seven, uh, being attached to our phones and everything, there's always something out there for us to listen to nowadays. So, well, let's, uh, let's switch topics a little bit here and we'll jump into a few topics that you guys are experienced in James. I believe we've got a video that's going to set up kind of outdoor safety and, and thunderstorms and lightning and talk about how important it is to take weather seriously. What are the criteria for, canceling or postponing or delaying a game when there's a thunderstorm in the area? Uh, so for cancellating or postponing a game lightning wise, MLB does not have a rule like the NCAA. So we're kind of worried about anything within the four to five mile radius. And that's when we'll start to post things on the uh, stadium scoreboard. You know, want to head to shelter, move away, but there is not an MLB standard. Um, we've played on with a lot of lightning going on in the distance. What strikes me is the number of people that don't realize that you cannot have thunder without lightning and vice versa. There, there's still this perpetual perception error that exists among the public that, well, I'm safe as long as I don't see lightning. If I see lightning, then I'm in danger. I was asking the kids today, well, if you see thunder, if you hear thunder, are you still at risk? And probably one half to two thirds of the kids said, oh, I'm still safe. That's what the public thinks as well. That's what adults think. And that's also, I think, what people who are in charge of making decisions on the playing field think. We have to somehow educate them to the point where they realize if you hear thunder, you're at risk for electrocution. Every thunderstorm is a potential killer. We lose close to 40 people a year in the United States unnecessarily due to lightning strikes. I think this is an avenue that we really have to hit strong, particularly outdoor venues, sporting events, outdoor festivals. Uh, this is an avenue that we really need to work towards improving our safety and also our education. It's interesting to me that there's not more of a almost political side that gets involved in this. I mean, if, imagine if we didn't regulate smoke detectors and things like that at buildings and we just let people do whatever they wanted. Uh, I'm surprised there hasn't been more of a push from state legislators or something like that to say, hey, there needs to be a policy in place for games and things like this. I think once you issue a policy, then you're starting to infringe on someone's right to be an idiot, frankly. Uh, I, let me tell you an experience that I had a couple years ago when my son was playing soccer at the high school level. I knew there were thunderstorms around that afternoon when he was playing. So when he finally got home, I said, did you guys play the entire game? And he said, yes, we did. And my question was, did you see lightning or did you hear thunder? Yeah, we did. And did you still play? Yes, we did. And I said, well, why? Well, because the referee didn't call the game. They wanted to finish the game. So I immediately wrote a note to both the head coach and the assistant coach. And I said, you just put 10, 20, 30 people at risk for electrocution. Was that necessary? 
Well, that wasn't our call. That was the referee's call. We need to step up and take ownership for this problem. Yeah, I want to get on this too, because it seems like it's really interesting because across the, the, the spectrum of professional and, and really collegiate sports has got, you know, their policies, but uh, the PGA has really stepped up to, uh, you know, keep, keep everyone on the golf courses safe. And uh, it'd be nice to see, you know, Major League Baseball, NFL, and, and some others take, you know, take notes from them and, and copy what they're doing. Several years ago, when I was working at the Weather Channel, I was able to go out to a PGA tournament the week before the Masters. And what struck me during that event was the vans available at every hole for the players to seek safety. But there was no plan for all of the people watching that event. You know, Ricky, uh, you and I, we do some work with uh, Speedway Motorsports Incorporated, and we have yearly meetings with our racetracks that we work at, and uh, we we set criterias um, depending on the event. If it's a big NASCAR event, you know, we have uh, three barriers, per se. We have something that we're watching, and then once it gets in within, let's say, 12, 10 miles of the area of the track, uh, we have notified all the officials that need to be notified, and we are enacting evacuation so when we see lightning strike within eight miles of our facility uh that's it we're done ricky uh last year comes to mind the coca-cola 600 uh we were uh we were we're right beside nascar's booth and and we're watching radar and they're they're communicating with us and once uh once the eight mile the lightning hit, hit within eight miles we we gave them an x and, and about that time uh the caution flag came out the cars came down pit road and the red flag was issued. And uh, it was what, maybe 10, 15 minutes before we actually saw the rain move in. But by then we were able to get 90, 95% of the folks out of the speedway into a safer place. And uh, very uh, thankful that, that NASCAR and speedway motorsports uh, takes weather seriously. And, and it just, again, we, we, we talk about this a lot. Unfortunately, with Major League Baseball, I'm afraid something major is going to have to happen before we start to see some change implemented there. It's interesting that with MLB, the decision still comes down to the umpire, as far as I understand. That's the deciding factor is the one guy out there who gets to make the decision. It's no one else who maybe has more data, is more informed or anything. No, MLB's enacted the, the replay in New York City. Why can't they set up a weather monitoring system or hire a company like, you know, many that are out there to monitor all their games that are ongoing? It makes it's a lot it, of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely to me too. I mean, it, it uh, so, you know, Phil uh, from Stormfront Freaks uh, works for um, athletics at Miami University in Ohio. And I know he's talked about this, about what they've been trying to do there, you know, for their outdoor sports and trying and trying to protect it. It's, but it's amazing to me at all levels um, how um, when, you know, when you mentioned interfering with people's rights to be to be stupid. Um, I used to officiate or umpire um, youth baseball and softball games. Uh, and on more than one occasion, uh, I called a game and canceled it and said, everybody go home. Uh, and the abuse I got sometimes from the parents for doing that is, oh, let them play one more inning. I could see cloud to ground lightning. And I call and I said, we can't be out here. Uh, but it's amazing how many people said, oh, just, you know, we can, oh, we'll get one more inning in, no problem. And I went, no, this, you know, talk to me after we get a, you know, like you say, get a lightning strike and somebody dies or somebody gets injured from it. It's amazing. Hey. 
I emceed the 4th of July fireworks here in Bristol a couple of years ago, and we were expecting a line of thunderstorms to move in. I gave them 30 minutes heads up. Hey, this is going to be here at this time. And even being a local meteorologist, everyone kind of looked at me like, oh, okay, whatever. Band kept playing and, you know, we gave them 15 minutes and gave them a 10 minute heads up. I was like, if you don't want to get wet, you better move now. And the thing that caused everyone to run for their lives was a gigantic lightning strike and, and a thunder clap right over our heads. Um, and it's just one of those things where it's like, no one will do anything until it starts raining. So I, I think it goes back also to the, uh, to the whole notion of it won't happen to me, you know, uh, a lot of the hot topic stuff with, with weather warnings across the entire spectrum, whether it's severe thunderstorm, tornado warnings, you know, just people not taking warnings seriously. And that goes right in with lightning also. Yeah, there was a on that topic. There was an interesting comment that a colleague of mine made the other day, and it's has have we maxed out our ability to, for lack of a better word, save people in severe weather? Because you always have people who are going to the buildings on fire. They're going to stop and take a video of it. And there's always going to be people who you can give them 30 minutes heads up notice that a tornado is coming their way. But until they see it, they're not going to do anything. So it's like, have we maxed out our abilities as a, as a weather enterprise to provide them with the best information available for them to make their decisions? Does it really come down to personal responsibility? It's funny you mentioned that, Ricky, because facets, which is, you know, looks to be, uh, maybe a new warning system that comes out in the next couple of years. There's been talks that we could see tornado warnings issued up to 60 minutes in advance. And is there a time that we have too much time to prepare? Maybe people are like, I I've still got 20, 30 minutes before this comes. I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Not even that, but it will become a spectator thing. If we get so good at pinpointing where a tornado is going to touch down, will people actually drive there at a safe distance to see it? and then see the damage afterwards. Dr. Scully, you got any thoughts on uh, this topic? Oh, I think that's that's a very good point. One of the complaints, maybe not complaints, one of the criticisms, I guess, of, of worn on forecast, which is under uh, study right now as being a very real opportunity that will come down the road in the next 12 months. One of the, one of the issues that may come from that is too much time, too much worn time. And you may very well end up with this spectator mentality. Let me comment a little bit back on what Chris was saying. A lot of what we do, and social scientists are telling us this, telling us this, a lot of our reaction, a lot of our response has to do with our own personal risk assessment and also our experience with threatening weather. If you've never experienced a dangerous situation, then your risk tolerance is going to be far greater than someone who made it through Hurricane Camille or Hurricane Katrina. And I think trying to get a public to rally around a common theme when their, their experience level is so different, and some of that's tied to age and, of course, where they live, I think that's a huge problem, a, a huge challenge. I, I totally agree with you there. You know, uh, so many social, you know, different social and demographics across every little region and town. You know, every, every situation is going to be a little bit different and trying to reach that individual audience is going to be there's not a blanket answer for I guess that goes across the entire national spectrum that will work. You know, every, every little situation is going to, have to be tailored you know, to fit that that special demographic of people. But uh, just like you said, you know, different people have different tolerances for things. And and it's really hard because you want to tell people the real risk involved of, of not leaving, for example, a mobile home in a tornado. I mean, you want to be as as descriptive as possible, but you know, stop short of you know, really 
maybe even horrifying people. You tell them about some of the injuries that people sustain in tornadoes, which, uh, you know, from, I guess, a, a politically correct standpoint, probably wouldn't be the best thing to do. But, uh, you know, sometimes people need to know the truth. I jump in here and say that uh, over the last week, there's been a lot of chatter, <clears throat> chatter on weather Twitter about uh, the, the cars parked underneath the bridges, uh, especially out west or with the storms. Um, and just today I was reading an account um, that was very, unfortunately, graphic about, uh, you know, in the past, just the, the kind of injuries people have sustained underneath underneath those overpasses. Um, and sometimes it does take something like that to, you know, really get that stuck in your mind because that's it's, it's horrifying what severe weather can do. And like y'all have been saying, there's just the, the public doesn't realize that. You've probably seen the video from the Andover tornado of 1991, I think it is, where there was a film crew that took shelter under an overpass and they actually got an, a couple of families to go with them and they actually survived. It was either an F2 or an F3, I don't remember which. But that happened just a couple of years before, uh, let's say it would have been eight years before the May 3rd, 99 outbreak that, that uh, produced that F5 that moved through more Oklahoma. And I remember vividly looking at the silhouette of a couple of people who died because they were up against an the, the concrete of an overpass and they were just blasted by the debris that went through there. So an error, which unfortunately led to uh, the survival of one event, led to the fatality of another in, during another event. You go back and talk about, you know, people's perception of weather. I don't know if you run into this up in Pennsylvania, but, you know, in Appalachia here, we have an issue with mountains and tornadoes and people not believing that we can get tornadoes in our area as well. It really comes back to, you know, not just what you were told, but what your parents thought and what your grandparents thought and generations back sometimes. We have a problem up here that, you know, this James was talking about this might have been a Monday or the week before, but if that event is not right in your home, don't interrupt my television program. And I remember covering, uh, it was a tornado warning for the local NBC affiliate here in central Pennsylvania. And I broke into programming, which we're providing a public service. That's what we do, right? Save lives. So I broke into local programming and I covered this tornado threat for about 45 minutes for the length of the warning. The emails that I got, because this was on a Sunday afternoon during a PGA tournament in which Tiger Woods was leading, this was several years ago. The emails I got about interrupting their programming was, I can't even repeat them here. No, we do a, we do a segment uh, on our show sometimes called Weather Fools, right? <laughs> and, just, and, and I mean, there's no, there's no end to the material for that, you, you can well imagine. Uh, we had just a, probably a month ago, uh, one of our, we featured the Weather Fools and the Weather Fools were the people who were trolling you or others, it was not you in this case, uh, Dr. Scala, but yeah. uh, people like you for that exact reason. Um, and it had to do with the uh, the Dixie Alley tornado outbreak here oh, not too yeah. long ago. Yeah. And there were people that said, you know, get off the air, quit doing this, bring back my whatever it was that they were watching. And this just repeated over and over again. There were all these comments about that. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, to go back and circle around with when you talk about social media and things that people can do with that. I think now we have so much available to us. We can consume whatever news, whatever information we want. So if I want to believe uh, the video from where 
the news crew went under the overpass and people's lives were saved. If that's what I want to believe, then that's what I'm going to believe. And I kind of can, I can find other things that will support that. And so then I just continue to believe that. And I think that perpetuates some of this problem with the public, uh, not wanting to believe that it can happen to me, get it back to that, you know, that idea of not in my own backyard or, or it's not going to happen to me because look, it didn't happen to them. It's like a confirmation bias almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Uh, I do think one thing we need to do better as a, as a broadcast industry is inform people and educate people that, hey, we cannot just break into one county or one zone. Yeah, <laughs> eventually. But it, many people do have that mindset of, hey, why are you covering this? It's in, for lack of a better area, Birmingham. And, you know, I'm in Tuscaloosa. Who cares? But uh, many people don't seem to realize that it's all or nothing when it comes to TV signals nowadays. Which, which is, you know, think about Netflix and Hulu and things like that. You're used to getting your choice. You get to watch what you want to watch. And uh, when you don't have that option because you only get one signal, yeah, I can see how it tweaks a few people. But, uh, it, you know, maybe comes down to an education thing once again, among many other topics that need to be better educated on. Hey, hey Ricky, I want to jump in here also with that. You know, with these streaming services like uh, Netflix, Hulu, and you just go down the list, Apple TV, et cetera, you know, I'm surprised there's not any kind of government legislation already in place for, you know, for these uh, services to stream warnings, you know, in, in these geolocated areas. And just want to get y'all's thoughts on that. I think that's going to have to be coming eventually. Um, but it, right now it's kind of a thing of how do you do it? How do you regulate it? Uh, the software is probably easy to implement, I imagine. You know, they already know where you live. They know your IP address and all the stuff you're getting from them. Uh, but it's going to be one of those things where does Netflix and Hulu want to take that responsibility? And do they want to provide for many people how they would view it an interruption to their services? Because many people watch Netflix and Hulu because they don't have commercials, don't have these interruptions. And do these companies actually want to become places that have that kind of stuff? Well, let's, uh, let's switch topics here a little bit from that to uh, maybe another topic that causes a little bit of arguments. Uh, Hurricanes. We are coming up on hurricane season here. So let's talk about the categorization of hurricanes. Carolina is certainly a place that sees many hurricanes over the years. A viewer comment a minute ago saying, uh, you know, people who complain about weather perhaps should experience first. <laughs> uh, saying that she's been in a few hurricanes, floods in Charleston's, horrible winds in the North Carolina mountains, uh, the evacuations and everything that are, come from that can be horrific to experience. But my question to you guys are, and the entire panel is, the way we classify hurricanes now, you know, the category one through five scale, is that the best way? And if not, uh, what are your thoughts on how we could change that? Mark, we'll start with you if you want. Sure. So we, we thanks. We talked about this uh, on one of our shows, again, not too long ago. And I think I thought one of the interesting things that came up is I, I guess I will say I think the just the one through five is probably not sufficient. Too many people now will say, oh, well, it's a category one, I'm fine, or it's a category two, I'm fine. Uh, but then the flooding comes, right? And the storm surge and the flooding you know, comes after it. And then that, you know, causes all the problems that it does. And, you know, turn around, don't drown, which nobody believes either. They try to drive through it, right? Well, anyway, we, we talked a lot in on our show about could there possibly be a two column, you know, two or three, you know, column uh, one through five, where it says, okay, it's a category one in terms of wind, but the expected storm, storm surge would put it at a category three for storm surge. And what does that mean? Now, I know that can get confusing because people have more things they have to think about there, but maybe at least one or two different, uh, one or two extra P 
pieces of information might be valuable to people and might help them understand, oh yeah, that last one that was a category three for storm surge really caused a lot of problems. I have to take that seriously. That was one of the things we talked about and thought maybe there was a way to do that. Dr. Scholar, from an academic standpoint, would this cause confusion in you know, how records are kept and things like that? We obviously went from the F scale to the EF scale with tornadoes, but uh, reanalyzing, would that come into play as far as you know, going back and looking at different hurricanes and perhaps reclassifying it if we ever were to change the scale? You know, I think most definitely that's going to foul up the climatology. That was one of the comments I think that was made when the EF scale was under consideration. Um, fortunately, the record of reliable tornadic events goes back to about 1950. So with the implementation of the Doppler radar network in 91 and then the, the EF scale in 2000, was it seven, I think? Anyway, I think that there is a there is a side-by-side -side comparison at times that's made with particular events. But we needed to go to the EF scale. For anyone who's done damage surveys and had to rely on the old F scale, it was totally inadequate. The EF scale now is actually under consideration for an improvement to that as well. And engineers have been brought in. There's a, a group that's actually looking at improving the EF scale. To go back to the hurricane scale, the beauty of it is it is simple, right? It's one to five. I'm really glad that the Hurricane Center got away from incorporating storm surge, minimum pressure, and maximum winds under the same category. Uh, we found from Hurricane Ike, for example, that that was bad. That was a bad thing to do. We found from Hurricane Katrina, which was a category three at landfall, but had a category five storm surge, if you wanted to go back to the original numbers. I'm really glad that that's been separated out. The public, are they ready for that? I'm not sure, particularly in the heat of an event. Yeah, I want to get in on this also, and you make a great point. And also to go forward with that, you know, I think if you want to keep the Safford Simpson scale as is, keep it. But the, what's more important to me is being able to communicate the, the, the appropriate risks because, you know, in hurricanes, uh, the majority of deaths come from storm surge, not from wind damage or, you know, wind right. damage. So, you know, you know, what's going to be the best way to communicate the risk of that storm surge, you know, I guess, in addition to the, the wind speed? And then that's that's a great question for somebody that's much smarter than I. <laughs> right. So another one of our topics that we wanted to talk about tonight was the future of meteorology. And so this kind of goes down a, a perhaps the same path. And, you know, as we continue to improve our technology, we continue to improve our ways of gathering different data from uh, drones to more high tech sensors. The question is, you know, how advanced are we going to be able to get and where do you see the weather enterprise being in, let's set it up, a yearly thing, 20 years, for example. Uh, so Dr. Scholar, we'll start with you. If you oh, had thanks. a magical crystal ball <laughs> spot, 20 years from now, where do you see the biggest gain in meteorology being? Wow. <clears throat> no well, the technologies that keep coming along are spectacular. Uh, we're going to move away from Doppler radar. We'll probably get to phased array. I think that'll be one of the improvements. I, I anticipate drones will be a big part of our remote sensing of the atmosphere. And we'll start sending drones more into hurricanes. We're doing some of that now, but I think more of that will take place. We'll probably minimize the risk to humans with the technologies that will be in place. We'll have to be very careful of being overloaded with data. I think we're there now. So 10 or 20 years from now, oh my goodness, how, how are we gonna deal with that data load? 
that was a thing with Go 16. Uh, I think they said one time Go 16 was going to send back so much data that uh, we were going to have a hard time processing it for a little bit of time. Right. That's right. There will always be the human factor. So I think in terms of broadcast, I think a lot of folks, when they're at risk, immediate risk, they want to see a human talking to them. So I don't think we'll completely go away from a human on television, a, a broadcaster telling you what the current situation is. But I think television broadcasting, the meteorology is going to change. I think, I think there'll be less of that on television and more of it here, which just about everybody gets their information from. Very few people go and get their news from television. So television itself is going to change. There's no question about that. But when it comes down to one of those life-threatening events, I think most people still want to see human. It'll be interesting. You know, as you say, television will change. And I agree with you. I believe it will. Uh, it, television, though, seems to be one of the easiest ways and the thing people still turn to during big events as of right now. So it'll be interesting to see if we do move to a more digital space, whether these digital spaces and whatever form TV still exist at the time, uh, bring in meteorologists or bring in broadcast Mets to be on their network when a major event happens. Yeah, I agree with that. Good idea. Mark, any thoughts on this? You know, I, I, I'm not a meteorologist, right? And so I don't have that background, but um, bringing it back around to what we talked about with, you know, can they narrow it down to a, a more finite location in terms of warnings and things like that? And I think, you know, given the technology improvements that we've had within 20 years, we probably ought to be able to do that in a, you know, even in a broadcast world, but maybe broadcast moves more, like you said, to the phones and the other devices that, that people have. And so the live person may come in on a more on a smaller geographic uh, warning. Uh, that would be kind of nice to see. You know, we're talking about technology and how technology will improve everything. But I want to jump back a couple of years here real quick, because, Mark, you have a pretty big background in ham radio. And I want you to kind of explain to our viewers how ham radio uh, works in weather and how they can get involved in it. And uh, uh, Dr. Scott, I know James Spann has spoke many times on the podcast Weather Brains about, you know, he used to do ham radio stuff. That's how he got involved in weather. But uh, Mark, talk about uh, how ham radio in the weather enterprise could still be a valuable thing even now in 2019. Sure. Um, you know, and I haven't I haven't been involved in it that long, but long enough to to have you know discovered some of the some of the reasons why we still use it. And up in our area, I'm in Minnesota, we don't have a lot of tornado outbreaks, but we have our, have our share. Uh, and so our spotter network uh, in our area utilizes ham radio still as our primary means of communication. While we also use, you know, these devices and the texting and the, uh, the other ways that you can get in contact with the National Weather Service and with each other, uh, ham radio is still the primary use. And for there's a, a number of reasons for that. Number one, uh, it's very reliable, and generally it, it, it works all the time uh, for the most part. Uh, most of the repeaters and the things, uh, a repeater is a uh, location or a radio that everybody can reach, right? Everybody re reaches the repeater and then that sends a signal out to everybody else. So it's that group communications uh, over uh, amateur radio. And those you know those units are up all the time they have generators they have all those kinds of things and when you're in your car uh mobile and you're spotting you can more easily use a radio than you can trying to text obviously we don't want people doing that right and we don't want people trying to bring up things on their 
especially just a storm spotter who's by themselves, doesn't have anybody else with them navigating or helping them like a spotter or like a uh, chaser might have. So it, it gives you that advantage of being able to pick up the radio and, and make an immediate contact without having to dial anything, without having to um, really think about it. You just bring that microphone up and you can do hands-free too with amateur radio as well, which uh, a number of people do. So I think from that standpoint, it's, it's safe, it's easy to use, and you can talk to everybody right away. And in our area, the National Weather Service still monitors the regional uh, repeaters where the uh, storm spotting groups are, are using. So it's one central point of communication. And I think that's, you know, one of the advantages to it. And, and you know, the crowd using it's getting older. We're having a hard time getting younger people involved in it. But I think it's still a viable communications method. Uh, that works really well for reporting storm conditions. Again, everybody hears it. Everybody uh, knows what's going on, every, at least everybody that's, you know, uh, on the network at the time. You mentioned how the National Weather Service uses ham radio. We have a story that our panelist, James uh, Briarton put together a few years ago that talks about how the Weather Service does, does that. A tornado coming down out of the clouds and almost to the ground level. When the weather is at its worst. South of Yule Road, it's probably getting close to 35 right now. Everyday citizens using radio communications act as foot soldiers for the National Weather Service. They play a vital role in helping us to monitor what's really happening on the ground. Because as I said, we only see what's up in the storm clouds, so we really need that verification to know what's happening on the ground to let other people know, maybe the downstream of the storm, what they can anticipate. Forecasters still prefer real people over today's technology. This is the Georgia Amateur Radio Emergency Service Net. Robert Burton receives incoming radio messages for the Weather Service. The radar can only see so much. I mean, it cannot see the actual tornado on the ground, and that's where the eyes and ears of Skywarn comes, comes into play. Skywarn spotters are the name of volunteers watching and reporting the weather. From where Robert sits in Peachtree City, he can talk with radio operators across the state. One of them is Huey Kenmar. The guy sitting on top of a, a hill saw a tornado and was given us the exact place it was and where it was headed. And when all else fails, radio operators say they are among the most dependable. There are many times we'll have storm spotters in the field that will not have cell phone coverage in a particular area. However, they will have ham radio coverage. A tornado. Certainly a valuable resource that uh, still is used today and probably will be used for many years to come. Well, we're getting close to 915 here and the end of our show. Uh, but since this is National Weather Podcast Month and we've got a few folks on from different weather podcasts, we want to ask them what is their favorite memory from their respective podcast? So, Mark, we'll let you go first. Uh, <laughs> do you have any memories that stick out from a episode of Stormfront Freaks? You know, there, there's there's been several where we've uh, laughed so hard we, you know, could hardly talk anymore and, and that's been because of gaffes that have happened and because of sometimes it's somebody trying to share their screen and uh you know those kinds of things and so i tell people if you want to see that kind of stuff you do have to watch our live <laughs> broadcast because that's the raw we cut those things out for the audio podcast so it's not quite as uh because you know you lose something when you can't see it happening uh but we we had uh gary england uh on legendary uh broadcaster and meteorologist in Oklahoma City. And he had to be probably one of the most entertaining. I mean, he was as knowledgeable as they come and full of knowledge and lots of great topics, but he's also entertaining as all get out with his uh, phrases and his things that he says. Uh, and you have to, you have to hear him 
uh, to know what I'm talking about. But he was a very, very entertaining guest. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed that show. And I know our, our listeners and, and viewers did as well, because it's been one of our it was one of our uh, most listened to and shared out uh, episodes. We certainly know all about that. We've had Gary on uh, once, exactly. or, once or twice now, and he is certainly a hoot. Uh, to going back to people trying to share screens, yeah, we've had that too. Uh, <laughs> when we had Kevin Stelly on one time, and Kevin <laughs> out the admin link instead of the watch oh. YouTube link. Oh and no! At least some random people from Texas were joining us on our podcast, which was interesting. Uh, so it's it's always a memorable. Ricky, if I'm not mistaken, they were wearing masks. Was like, they were. It was like a wrestling <laughs> to join our podcast. So interesting there. Dr. Scala, how about you? Oh, we've had several. <laughs> One of my favorite is whenever we can get Chuck Doswell on. Uh, I just really appreciate his, his straight-on view of things. Uh, it may not always be what you want to hear, but it is his honesty that comes through. Whenever we can get him, we were supposed to have him on on Monday. For some reason, it didn't work out. So we'll get him on soon. I think one of the episodes that stands out in my mind really vividly is a bit of a somber one. And I'll just relate it to you shortly. Uh, it's uh, It followed the Joplin F5 uh, from a few years ago. And it was, uh, the guest was actually a medical doctor who was out storm chasing that day and ended up uh, storm chasing, obviously, right in the Joplin. And when the hospital went down, he was actually brought in, identified himself as a surgeon and ended up working a 12 hour shift. And just to hear him talk about what he experienced from just going out storm chest and that day, ending up 12 hours in the emergency room was uh, really phenomenal. That's quite the story. I gotta go back and watch that one. I'm not sure I've seen that episode. So that's yeah, it's, the one I need to go look up. Yeah. Well, uh, Scotty, I will hand it off to you to allow our guests to plug their social media accounts and wrap up the show here. Definitely so. Thank you, Ricky. Um, one more thing before we before we let you guys go uh, and give us your information about your podcast is, what's the future look like for Stormfront Freaks and Weather Brains? You guys have any uh, any upcoming guests that you're excited to have, or maybe some new uh, new uh, events or something like that going on? I'll jump. I'll jump in, Mark from Stormfront Freaks. Uh, I, I was going to mention this earlier because you had uh, Mace Michaels, you know, from the Twins, talking about the lightning and, and some of those things. We're definitely going to ask him some of those questions because we have him on uh, next week on Thursday, April fourth at uh, nine o'clock uh, Eastern time. He will be our guest uh, live, and then of course he'll obviously on the pod, the audio version of the podcast as well. So that's coming up. Uh, for sure. So we're going to ask him some questions based on what we've talked about here tonight. Uh, that'll be good. And, uh, you know, we always throw in new little bits. Um, uh, watch and listen for our Weather Trollbot 5000. That's been one of our uh, viewers and listeners' favorite for some reason. It's kind of odd, uh, but uh, you'll have to listen for what that's all about. Dr. Scala, what about uh, Weather Brains? Yeah, I'm just looking at our schedule. We're going to, on April 1st, will be a show on hazard simplification. So we're going to have, I think Eli Jacks is going to be on that show. We're going to be talking about the Columbus, Mississippi tornado on April the 8th. On April the 22nd, this should be really interesting. Harold Brooks is going to be on there with Victor Gensini. They're going to talk about some of the work they're looking at with changes perhaps in Tornado Alley. Uh, that should be really interesting. And I'm just looking ahead here. We're going to have Gary Woodall on April the 29th. So we'll really start talking about safety with outdoor events there. 
So we got quite a lineup coming down the road. Very cool. And to kind of with that, we have Victor Gensini coming on talking about the same thing in, uh, in towards the end of uh, June. And next week we, uh, we have a, a guest coming on, Doug Hildebrand, uh, directs the Weather Ready Nation program. He's going to be talking on, about uh, hazard simplification and uh, some of the upcoming uh, spring and summer hazards. So uh, good stuff. It's, it's cool how uh, we're coordinating some of the same messages. So hopefully uh, that'll be getting out to all those who are listening uh, the weather uh, for the weather podcast. And uh, if you are listening tonight from Weather Brains or uh, Stormfront Freaks, so we, we are on the air every Wednesday night and uh, at 8.15 p.m. Eastern time. And so I'm going to let uh, Dr. Scala and Mark, uh, if you guys don't mind, uh, to plug your program, maybe where our listeners and followers can find you all and the information and uh, maybe a social media site or website or wherever you would like for them to, uh, to, to be directed towards. Well, sure, Scotty. Uh, Weather Brains is on every Monday night. <laughs> every Monday night. <laughs> I've been trying to get those guys to move the time back a little bit. I don't start here in the east until 9.30, which means I don't finish until after 11 p.m. <laughs> and if you're an early riser, that makes for a short turnaround. But every Monday night, 9.30 Eastern, 8.30 Central Time, for a bunch of weather geeks just like you guys. Uh, we talk about anything and everything, and we have uh, quite a, an interesting set of lineups uh, over the next uh, several weeks. So you can email us at email, dot, email at weatherbrains.com or just do a search for Weatherbrains. You'll find us online. Great. Um, I'm Mark from Stormfront Freaks. And again, thanks for having us tonight. Uh, we, it's been a lot of fun. Um, Stormfront Freaks records every other Thursday because we just can't figure out how to get together on a weekly basis. So um, <laughs> you, you have to go to our website, stormfrontfreaks.com, and you'll make sure you find out which Thursday night we're on in case you want to uh, check us out live. But then, of course, our podcast is released on all the regular podcast sources, uh, typically on the weekend after afterwards. We also... Um, are on uh, Oklahoma Weather Tracker TV uh, on oh, Thursday cool. nights. Uh, cool. I believe it's seven o'clock central, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So we uh, they do broadcast our our uh, broadcast edit of our, our show as well. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Stormfront Freak, no plural on that one, and we're on Facebook Stormfront Freaks uh, as well. So you can find us on all those places. And again, thanks for having me tonight. Yeah, no problem, man. Uh, go on your uh, favorite. Um... I uh, uh, podcast uh, iTunes. So um, when it's quiet in the office, I'll pop on Weather Brains or Stormfront Freaks and listen to to the to you all as I'm doing uh, work in the office or working out or wherever it may be. So podcast is a great thing to do, and uh, we uh, we love being a part of the uh, National Weather Podcast Month. So uh, Melissa Griffin normally uh, is here with us, but uh, she had a big event over the weekend, and she also is called the uh, the crud or something like that. <laughs> Must be going around in South Carolina, Chris. I'm surprised you and Evan are still here with us. Uh, but, it's, uh, it's the pollen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, you know, I've got pollen dressed four feet high in my front yard. I don't want to hear pollen? it. Pollen? <laughs> What's that? Wow. We, haven't, we haven't got there yet here. No. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking after the 70-degree temperatures we're going to have on Friday and Saturday, that'll that'll become an issue. Uh, but as you know, Melissa's been uh, promoting Kokoros all uh, month. This is uh, March Madness. And... We have a little video on how you can register to be a Kokoros member. Hi there. Here's your chance to finally do something about the weather. The South Carolina Climate Office wants you to participate in a program called the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. We call it Kokoros. And the month of March is an excellent time to sign up. 
Why? Because all across the nation during the month of March, from the 1st through the 31st, there's a friendly competition amongst all the climatologists to see how many Coco Ross observers they can all get signed up. And you can help the state of South Carolina bring home the trophy. All you have to do is do what you probably do anyway. Watch the weather and the wind and write some stuff down. So, you're going to need access to the internet. You'll need an official Coco Ross rain gauge. You're gonna watch an online video to become a trained observer, and you'll need a few minutes a day to enter your data. And you're gonna be on the internet anyway, so why not sign up? Here's how to get started. One of the first things you're gonna to wanna to do is put your rain gauge out in an open area where the rain can get to it. Yeah, somewhere like this should work just fine. So we've got our rain gauge set up out here in the open with no obstructions and it's on a path that the dogs and I take every morning on our way to get the morning paper. Now ideally you're going to take your observations every morning around 7 o'clock. If you can't be that consistent, it's okay. As long as you take your readings between 4.30 and 9.30 in the morning, that information can still be fed into the map and compared to other readings all across the country. And those reports are vital for filling in the gaps in the weather puzzle and you, yes you, are helping South Carolina do its part. Now, if your schedule just doesn't allow you to take a measurement every day, that's okay. There is a separate data entry form that allows you to enter multi-day reports. Sprinkle a different kind of madness into your march. Put your head into the clouds, become a citizen scientist, and help put South Carolina on the map. Literally. Become a Coco Ross weather observer. Here's how. All right, well, as last check, I can say I haven't checked today, but as of yesterday, South Carolina was leading the nation with newest Kokoros uh, members, so uh, good for you, South Carolina. Keep on working. I think if you do this, this will be two two years in a row that South Carolina has taken home the uh, Kokoros Cup, so uh, North Carolina, you need to get get on the ball there, get, uh, get signed up. So uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight here for the Carolina Weather Group. As I teased just a little bit earlier, Next week, we have Doug Hildebrand. He is the uh, ambassador or leader of the Weather Ready Nation uh, campaign, and he's going to be joining us talking about uh, hazard simplification as well as uh, some upcoming spring and summer hazards that uh, we need to take into account, like rip currents and lightning safety and uh, tornado safety. So uh, always have fun to have Doug joining us. So he will be our guest next week on the Carolina Weather Group. As we leave you tonight, our own Chris Jackson saw uh, shot some amazing sunset footage over the Columbia Airport. So we hope you enjoy that, and we will see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group.